Well, good morning again. You know, uh, it was the late 1990s when there was an unprecedented season of financial prosperity in our country. We knew it as the dot-com era. And these huge companies emerged that we'd never heard of um, who began to use the internet to make millions and even billions of dollars. During this season, uh, all of us got these CDs in the mail from AOL, and amazing things started happening. You remember that sound? I mean, no one could get on your house, on the internet in your house, you know, in quiet. Oh, I still remember that sound. And, uh, and it was an amazing time. I mean, I can remember the first time I got on an AOL chat room and I was talking to people I never had met before, which now seems a little bit creepy, you know? Um, but then it was just really cool. And, and a lot of these stocks were being traded on the NASDAQ, and they were making an incredible amount of money. I mean, this is a, a little bit of the, the rise and fall of the NASDAQ during that era. You know, in, in January of 1998, the NASDAQ traded right at 1,500, but, but about two years later, in March 10th of 2000, it had grown by 500%. And so people were making just billions of dollars. They were worth tons of money on paper. But as you could tell, a crash was coming, and between March 10th of 2000 and October 9th of 2002, we're talking about maybe 30 months here, 80% of that value went away. And so if you had all of your life savings in the NASDAQ, you, you were destroyed. These people who went from being worth 150, 250, 500 million dollars went from being millionaires to being bankrupt in just a short time. And as a result, people lost their jobs. Many people committed suicide. There was a profound sense of disappointment but as early as 1998, some in this booming sector were already raising questions. They were already identifying problems. I found an article this week from the 1998 edition of Fast Company, the October issue, where Helen Rubin wrote this in an article entitled, Success Excess. Success Excess. And here's what she said. Of all the subjects we obsess about, success is the one we lie about most. That success and its cousin money will make us secure. That success and its cousin power will make us important. That success and its cousin fame will make us happy. But it's time to tell the truth. Why are our generation's smartest, most talented, most successful people flirting with disaster in record numbers? People are using all their means to get money, power, and glory, and then self-destructing. She says, maybe they didn't want it in the first place, or maybe they didn't like what they saw when they finally achieved it. Profound words in a, a very mainstream, secular place. You know, I was thinking about my own life and my own struggle with power and control, and there's lots of stories that I could tell. And so on Tuesday, as I was wrapping up work on this sermon, I asked my wife, hey, what should I share from my own life? What are stories from things? I mean, you know my failures better than anybody else. I mean, what story should I tell? And, and, and it was funny, the story that I'm about to tell you hadn't yet happened. I, I went out and I was in an event on, on Tuesday night, got home late, um, had a little bit of work left to finish, and everybody was already asleep. So I did a little work for about an hour on my computer, and I got into bed, and all of a sudden we woke up and our daughter was, was crying and coughing, and she was having an asthma attack. So we, we gave her an inhaler, and that didn't work, and we gave her a breathing treatment, and that didn't work. And so it was about 40 degrees on Tuesday night, so we put her in the car, and I'm I'm driving around because the inhaler doesn't work, so you just drive around. And so if you, I live in Chino Valley, so I'm like driving from roundabout to roundabout, just circling at like 1120 going, what on earth am I doing right now, you know? Um, 
And I was reminded of this, of this subject of power and control. You see, I realized at that moment how little power I had. I couldn't crawl my daughter's lungs and make her breathe. Um, I couldn't turn uh, her panic into calm. Um, and, and if you've ever had health struggles or you know somebody who has health struggles, you're reminded that power and control is, is an illusion. And I think for a lot of us, even if we don't see ourselves as powerful people or controlling people, that power and control can become idols in our lives. They become stumbling blocks to the work that God wants to do. And we've been in this series called Freedom, Breaking Free from Our Idols, talking about how good things that God does in our lives and our world often become gods that we look to for safety and for security, for, for a promise of provision. But the truth is we go looking for safety and security and what we find is slavery. We find ourselves struggling to live into the freedom that God called us to and gave himself for. And so today we're talking about two idols, the idols of power and control. And just a reminder, if you're here for the first time in this series, our definition of an idol is this from Tim Keller. Keller says, an idol is anything you look to give you what only God can give. An idol is anything you look to for what only God can give. And many of us, that's power and control. So this morning, our big idea is this. If you walked in with a bulletin, you have a handout you can write this down on. Power and control promise us what we want, but keep us from what we need. Power and control promise us what we want, but they keep us from what we need. And this morning, we're going to be in a section of the, of the Bible called the Old Testament, and a section in the Old Testament that we rarely get to. It's a book called Second Kings. So if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you start out with the first five, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Hit Joshua, my favorite Old Testament character, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. We're going to be in Second Kings. So if you open up your Bible or turn it on and head there, we're going to learn today about a man named Naaman, who was a powerful leader who lived in a world where he had tremendous control. But what he discovered was that his his control and his power and his influence came up empty in the very place that Helen Rubin described in her article from Frass Company. And today we're going to learn some difficult lessons from this guy named Naaman. We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 5, and here's what we read. Now Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but... He was a leper. The first lesson we learned from Naaman is that power and control will not protect you in a broken world. Power and control will not protect you in a broken world. You see, Naaman was, was one of the most powerful men on earth. At this time, Syria was one of the most powerful militaries on earth, and Naaman had led them to conquer great sections of Mesopotamia, and they'd even threatened Israel at a certain point. And so he's the commander of the army. He's got a reputation as being a mighty man of valor. In that day, we, they didn't look up to football players and basketball players and movie stars and rap artists. They, they looked up to warriors. And so Naaman was the hero of that world. He was a mighty man of valor. He was successful in battle. He was essentially the prime minister of Syria, which has incredible relevance for us today. And and yet, amidst all of that power, the scripture says that he was a leper. 
Now, if you know anything about leprosy, you know that since ancient times, it's been one of the most destructive diseases that's ever stricken humanity. It, it, it's a long, slow, painful death. And in this day, in Israel, if you became um, afflicted with leprosy, you were cast outside of the community to live with other lepers out of fear that you would infect people. No one could touch you. No one could be near you. And the disease literally ate you from the outside in, where you'd lose your skin and body parts and die a very slow, horrific, painful death. So, so Naaman has everything that he could want in terms of power and control and wealth. He has everything he wants when it comes to influence and fame, and yet none of that has been able to protect him from leprosy. And this is a great reminder for us because in our day, we worship health. We worship health. People who have six-pack abs, people who have time to afford to work out for two or three hours in the gym or pay for the best doctors or the best plastic surgery, people who are able to maintain health later on in life, we look up to with admiration. We pay great deals of money for pills and, and procedures to be able to give us a sense of health. And yet Naaman is this reminder to us that no amount of power and control can protect you in a broken world from getting sick. It doesn't matter if you have $5 or $5 billion, you're still going to die one day. You're still as, as vulnerable as the rest of us. And so even as he's put his, his faith and power and control, he's reminded that, man, this is not able to give me what I most want. Something interesting happens, though, in the next verse, in verse 2. It says the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. So human trafficking existed even way back then. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And this slave girl from Israel said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would cure him of his leprosy. So the second lesson we learn from Naaman is that healing doesn't come from your power and control. Healing doesn't come from your power and control. This slave girl reminds her, her master that, that she's from a different place, and in that place there's a prophet. His name is Elisha. We'll meet him in a, a little bit, and he could cure her. This man, Naaman, he had everything the world could offer. He had a resume. He likely had a huge home. He had wealth and yet none of that could heal him. You've ever met somebody who's sick before, and they're like, I'll pay anything to be well. Well, what if healing doesn't come from money? You begin to get disillusioned. You and I, we've both met people who had everything going for them, and they self-destruct. People who were, who were bright and beautiful and wealthy and influential, and yet they were profoundly lonely or profoundly broken. I think some of the most unreached areas of the world are not in the Sudan where there's famine, or Syria where there's a refugee crisis. I think they're in the wealthiest zip codes of America, where people have profound wealth, and yet they have found that wealth unable to bring them an end to their emptiness, their loneliness, and their brokenness. See, power and control can be good things, 
But when we look to them for what only God can give, we find that they cannot deliver. They promise us what we want, but they keep us from what we need. And Naaman is discovering this. So in verse 4, he begins to take action. It says, Naaman went in and told his lord, this is the king of Syria, this thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. He recounted the story. So the king of Syria said, go now and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. And Naaman brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. The third lesson we learn is that the powerful and controlling naively think they can manipulate God. The powerful and the controlling, they naively think they can manipulate God. See, Naaman shows up and he goes to the king and says, hey, this is what I've heard. This is what this slave girl told me. And so the king says, okay, let's set you up. Let's, let's send you to go there. And what's so interesting is that the slave girl told Naaman to go to the prophet in Israel. Where does he go? He goes to the king. Because they believe that they're going to manipulate the situation by manipulating the king. The king of Syria sends a letter to the king of Israel and says, heal this man. And they're going to send him with wealth. They're going to send him with money, gold and silver. They're going to send him with clothing, which to us isn't a big deal because most of us have more than 10 changes of clothing. But in that day, you had one. If you're wealthy, maybe two. So 10 was just, I mean, it's like a walk-in closet that's bigger than your bedroom, you know? It's just amazing. And they send a letter. And all of these things are going to manipulate King Joram, the king of Israel, to cure Naaman. And before we think that Naaman is a really bad guy, and this king is really bad guys, and they manipulate I don't think this is that far off from how many of us live. About 12 years ago, a study was released by a man named Christian Smith, and the study was entitled Soul Searching. The subtitle is The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. Smith, a sociologist and also a follower of Jesus, studied 3,000 church-going teenagers. Now, these aren't atheistic teenagers. These aren't teenagers that grew up in non-Christian homes. These are teenagers that are sitting in seats like this on the average Sunday morning. And what Christian Smith discovered in this study, he summarized in a term that he invented called moralistic therapeutic deism. That was his summary of the belief system of these 3,000 teenagers, and he defines it in five ways that I want to share with you this morning. The first part of MTD, or moralistic therapeutic deism, is a belief in a God who exists, who created and ordered the world, and watches over human life on earth. That isn't that far off from the truth. We believe that God created everything that exists, and he ordered it, and he watches over it, but it goes from there. Number two, he, he discovered that these teenagers believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. So the, the best you can do, according to God, is be good, nice, and fair. Point three, the central goal of life, according to these teenagers, is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Four, God doesn't need to be particularly involved in one's life 
except when God is needed to resolve a problem. So he's kind of like Uber. He's there when you need him, but otherwise you can ignore him. And then five, good people go to heaven when they die. This is 3,000 church-going teenagers. Where do you think they learned this? They learned it from us. They didn't learn it from Hollywood, although it may have been reinforced there. These teenagers learned it sitting in seats like this. They learned it from their parents. And so when I say that the powerful and controlling naively think they can manipulate God, I believe many of us live in a world where we think we can put God in a corner and manipulate him. I'm a really good person, God. I I give to my church. I'm there most Sundays. I'm involved in a small group. I've even been on a mission trip. I gave money to that kid in the church who's going to Africa, you know, like I, I read my Bible every day. My spouse and I pray. I'm trying to teach my kids the right way. Therefore, you shouldn't let anything bad happen to me. And if anything does happen to me, God, what are you thinking? This wasn't the deal we worked out. See, the problem is that more moralistic therapeutic deism is not just a problem limited to teenagers. I believe it is the dominant theology of many adults in American churches today. And the result of this is we think we put God in our debt by living good, right, and holy lives when in actuality we're in his debt. The passage continues in verse 7 where it says, the king of Israel read the letter and he tore his clothes and he said, am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. The fourth lesson from Naaman is that God doesn't operate the way the world does. God doesn't operate the way the world does. See, I mentioned earlier that that Naaman was told, go to the prophet in Samaria. But he doesn't go to the prophet in Samaria. He goes to the king in Jerusalem. Well, why is that? Because that's how this world works. King talks to king. Power talks to power. Power pays off power to do its bidding. But that isn't the way that God works. And Joram, the king of Israel, he knows this. He knows that he can't tell God to heal Naaman. That isn't in his power. That's why it says he tears his clothes. In the ancient day, when you tore your clothes, it was a sign of of profound grief and sorrow and distress. Now it's just a sign of hipsterism, you know, like you, the bigger the holes, the more expensive your jeans were, you know, like, but in this day, it was a sign of distress and Joram knows that he can't manipulate God, much less Elisha. And the reason he knows this is that he and Elisha have been in this battle ever since he's been king because he's not been living God's way. He himself has been worshiping God and he's been worshiping idols. But he knows enough to know, just because I got some gold and some silver and some clothes, doesn't mean I can, I can heal you, bro. And so he's overwhelmed. And this goes back to, to the moralist therapeutic deism. That fourth one, you know, God isn't too involved in our lives except when we need him. Christian Smith says, in this view, God is somewhere between cosmic genie and divine butler. Where he exists to grant our wishes and he's there at our beck and call. And that was the view that Naaman and the king of Syria had. God was there to do their bidding. He was there at their beck and call, and they could ask him for things, and he'd grant their wishes. 
But God doesn't operate the way this world does. He doesn't follow our rules. And contrary to popular opinion, He doesn't bow to us. We bow to Him. And so this reminder is now coming, this lesson is now coming for Naaman that that this is a very different way of life. In verse 8, he finally ends up at this guy Elisha's house. It says, When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king a message saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. And so Naaman came with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold. I mean, how, how powerful do you have to be to walk around and go, behold, you know? Um, <laughs> behold, I thought that we would surely come to meet, and he would call upon the name of the Lord as God, and he would wave his hand all over the place, and he would cure the leper. Are not Abama and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so we turned and went away in a rage. But his servants, and God bless his servants, came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? The fifth lesson that Naaman learns is that we resist God's plan for freedom because it doesn't require our power and control. This doesn't really go well for Naaman, because it's not what he expected. He said, you're going to come out, and you're going to stand in front of me in my chariots and my entourage, and you're going to wave your hand and do this mighty magic act, and then behold, I'm going to be clean. And that's not what happened. Naaman arrived with his chariots. Elisha didn't even come out to him. He sent his servant. He says, just go wash on the river. Make sure you go down there seven times. That's it. He's like, I came all this way for this? I went through all of this for this. I could have stayed home and washed in one of our rivers, which are better. And if you've ever been to Israel, you know the Jordan River is not the most beautiful river in the world. It's not like Paris, like the Nile and Egypt where it's renowned. I mean, it's, it's a boring, dirty river. He says, just go wash in it seven times. And luckily, cooler heads arrive in his servants. And they say, he didn't ask you anything that hard. He just said, go wash in the Jordan seven times. It's pretty easy. And it's a reminder for us that salvation is a free gift. The only thing you need is need. The salvation that God offers you is a free gift. The only thing you need is to admit that you need it. One of the signs that this is a, a, a powerful act of healing is the word seven. I'm not big into numbers in the Bible, and there's some people who can go off the deep end with this, so be aware of that. But the number seven all throughout the scriptures is a number of, of completion. The earth was created in seven days. In the book of Leviticus, if there was a leper who was uh, healed, he was commanded to go and to bow before the uh, priest and to offer a sacrifice to thank God for his sins, and he was to bathe seven times. So this is following the law of God that God commanded and so Naaman comes, and he's, he's surprised that this is how it works. It seems too easy. Isn't that hilarious? He's more mad that it's easy than he's mad he's going to be healed. It's just a sign of how, how much he struggles with power and control anyway. 
And it's a reminder that for many of us, the power we have actually makes us more insecure and more afraid. I don't know about you, but I've been on people who are incredibly powerful, who are incredibly controlling, and who are also incredibly insecure. You'd think the more power they got, the less fear they would have. But it seems the more power and control they get, the more fear they have. There's a famous poem that sustained Nelson Mandela when he was in prison in South Africa. It's known as Invictus. It, they made a movie about it um, starring Morgan Freeman. It's a great film. But this is what the, the, the crux of the poem says. It says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And this is the way that many of us live. We're in charge. We have the power. We have the control. And yet those very things will keep us from the healing that we need. Remember, power and control, they promise us what we want, but they keep us from what we need. So the story ends in verse 14. So Naaman went down. He dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. He followed Elisha's command according to the word of God, the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. The last lesson that Naaman learns is that freedom is found in obedience. Freedom is found in obedience. It didn't seem like a rational thing for him to do. It didn't make sense to him. And yet he went and did it. And it's a reminder for us that oftentimes when it comes to what God calls us to do, it doesn't make sense. Sometimes I think that the sign that God's calling us to something is that it sounds crazy. Because so often the things that make sense to us are counter to what God wants to do. And so this is a reminder for us that the path of following Jesus is a path to flourishing, while even sometimes to us it feels like it's a path that constricts us and imprisons us. The word obedience, even for some of us, causes us a little bit of chills because we've heard that word before in a way that was slammed down us. You need to obey, you need to obey, you need to obey. And there are things in the scriptures that are hard words to hear. They are hard things to follow. But if we serve a God who wants the best for us, then following his ways is not the path to constriction and imprisonment. It's the, the path to flourishing. And so we don't obey because we feel afraid of God. We obey because we know that he wants what's best for us. And we trust him. And so I have some next steps for you. If, if you're somebody that today has discovered maybe you may have an issue with power or you may have an issue with being controlling, and here's the first next step. The first step is to embrace the wild, gracious God. To embrace the wild, gracious God. Our friend Naaman, he's been used to how things work in his world, a world of power and control and wealth. And yet he runs headlong into a God that will not be controlled. Tim Keller wrote these words in his book on idols. He said, the God of the Bible is not like that. Naaman is after a tame God, but this is a wild God. Naaman is after a God who can be put into debt, but this is a God of grace who puts everyone in his debt. So this week, as we prepare to, to move through the, the Easter week, the Holy Week, the Easter season, I think it's important for us to step back and say, have we tamed God? Has he become cosmic butler or divine genie there to do our bidding? 
Does God do things that don't make sense to you that you don't agree with? If not, you've probably shrunk him down. One of the most profound things about that entrance into Jerusalem that we call Palm Sunday is that all of those people had these expectations for what this Messiah was going to be. And if anything was learned in the next few days, this Messiah does not follow the bidding of men. He's going to be who he's going to be, and he's going to do what he's going to do. And so if you're going to worship the God of the Scriptures, the God we see most clearly revealed in Jesus, that God is a wild, gracious God. He's going to surprise you. He's going to frustrate you. And yet he is going to do exactly what you need. Embrace him. The second step is to receive life in Christ. Don't try to earn it. Receive life in Christ. Don't try to earn it. This is so hard for us. We're Americans. And this is built into our DNA and our national myth that those who work hard get ahead, that if you put in your time, you're rewarded, that those who don't work hard, who are lazy, are looked down on. And yet at the core of our faith is a salvation that we can do nothing to earn. And when we start earning it, it's a sign that we actually don't have it. There's a, a pundit named Bill Maher who's very well known. He's not a fan of Christians. And uh, a few years ago, he said this, I just don't get it. The thought of someone cleansing me from my sins is ridiculous. I don't need anyone to cleanse me. I can cleanse myself. And there are so many of us that operate from this worldview. Even if at one point we, we accepted the grace of Jesus, we work like crazy now to earn it or deserve it or to keep it. And this life that we find in Jesus in his death on the cross and forgiveness for our sins, it's, it's a gift that we receive. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I've applied all of these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's why a proud Christian is an oxymoron. That's why an arrogant follower of Jesus is like oil and water. If you are a follower of the one who did for you what you couldn't do for yourself, you have no place to be proud or arrogant or look down on anybody. One of the greatest travesties is that the the word that's in one of the top five words our culture knows from Christians is the word judgmental. We have no place to judge anybody. It wasn't the Jews who crucified Jesus. It wasn't the Romans who who crucified Jesus. It was my sin that crucified Jesus. And so I can't look down on anybody else's sin because it was my sin that put him there. And so the life that he wants to give me, I have to receive it because I can't do anything to earn it. The third next step is to open yourself up so God can set you free. You have to open yourself up so God can do this work in your heart. This week, um, I was thinking about the stories of the Chronicles of Narnia. My wife and I are reading our, our kids these books and The third book in the stories of Narnia is The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
and uh, they made a film of it, and there's a scene in it that really captured my attention, but frankly, the, the film didn't do it justice. And there's a scene where a man named Eustace, actually a boy, he's overwhelmed by this desire for power. And he discovers this sword that whenever the sword touches, turns to gold. So he, wakes, he goes to sleep one night with this sword having touched this ground, and he's just sleeping in all the gold. But he wakes up, and he's changed from a boy into a dragon. And this isn't a fun transformation, it's grief-inducing. He's powerful, but he repels everyone. He's lonely, and he wants everything in the world to be healed, including himself. And there's a section of the story that I want to read to you this morning, and I'd like to ask you to close your eyes as I read this story and see if you can find some of yourself in this story. The lion takes him to a well and Eustace says, the water was as clear as anything and I thought if I could get in there and bathe it would ease the pain in my leg, but the lion told me I must undress you first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say I couldn't undress because I had any clothes on and when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast off their skins. Of course I thought that's what the lion Aslan means. So I started scratching myself, and the scales began coming off all over the place. Then I scratched it a little deeper, and instead of scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully, like it does after an illness, or as if it was a, I was a banana. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was the most lovely feeling. So I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my foot into the water, I looked down and I saw that it was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. That's all right. It means I have a smaller unit on underneath and I'll get rid of that one too. So I scratched and tore again and this under the skin peeled off beautifully and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath while well, exactly the same thing happened again. Oh dear. However many skins have I got to take off, for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away for the third time and got a third skin, like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The first little tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he had begun pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts. But it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only that they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying in the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobby looking than the others before. And there I was, as soft and smooth as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd ever been. And he caught hold of me and threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything. But after that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing around, 
I found all the pain had gone from my arm and I saw why. I turned into a boy again. You can open your eyes. That's the work that God wants to do in you. He wants to take you and transform you from one who has been impacted by the idols you worship, whether they're power or control or success or achievement or sex or love or money or health or advancement or promotion. But the truth is we cannot set ourselves free. Only God can. And you have to surrender yourself to let him do that. And surrender is not a popular word in our culture. But it is the only way you will experience freedom. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you want to set us free. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be free from the power of sin and death. But we confess that we have worked our hardest to free ourselves. We've done all we can to tear off our own skin. And many of us have discovered that that just isn't working. And so we come here today with a choice to keep trying to transform ourselves or to surrender to you. This morning, I wonder if as you came today, God has been speaking to your heart and there's a place in your heart where you need to be free. Maybe you've never accepted the gift of life in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never received it or, or maybe you have received it, but you've never fully opened yourself up and asked God to do what only he can do. And so if there's a place where you need God to do what Eustace experienced, there's a place in your life where you need freedom today. I'd love to pray for you this morning. Would you raise your hand if that's you? Say, man, there's a place I need to be free. It's not an act of cowardice or weakness. It's an act of strength and boldness. Thank you. God, I pray for my friends who raised their hands this morning. God, if they've never accepted the gift of your salvation in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would this very morning. I pray that they would pray a, pray a simple prayer like this. I pray they would say, God, I can't do this on my own. I can't tear off my own skin. I can't undo my sin and my brokenness. Only you can change me. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross for my sins. Thank you for setting me free in him. I want to experience that today. I give you my life. I surrender to you. May you come in and do what only you can do. Help me to be free. For those of you who, aren't follow, who are already followers of Jesus, who have already prayed that prayer, my, my prayer today is that you would open yourselves up, that you wouldn't go the road of moralistic, therapeutic deism and call on God when you need him, but never any otherwise. I pray that you would surrender to him today and allow him to do what only he can do 
that you would confess your weakness and your brokenness the same that you did the very first time you accepted Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen. The band is going to sing a song with us this morning, and if you'd like to come forward and pray, we'll have people down here to pray with you, but I really strongly encourage you today, before we begin this week, this road to Easter, respond to and take action upon the moving of God in your heart. We can't set ourselves free, only he can. But we have to allow him in. Would you stand and sing with us? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.